Hey, everybody, and welcome to Healthy Discourse. It's Emily here, and I'm excited to welcome back to the show my friend, Sarah Absher. Hey, Sarah. Hey, how are you? I'm great. Thank you so much for coming back and joining us today. Um, If you've not listened to the first episode that Sarah and I recorded about uh, mental health treatment in the school systems and diving into the weeds of that, I do encourage you to go back, but wanted to mention that Sarah is running for the Board of Education in the county where I live, and I admire her for many reasons, and one of those is that she does her research. She understands the issues. She gets down below the things that sound pretty on the surface to figure out where they're being funded, what the actual goal is, and so forth. And so today we're going to talk about new codes of conduct that are being implemented and considered in school systems across our country. So this is not unique to our district or our state and how that relates to a concept called restorative justice, which is a new kind of hot button topic, which of course, again, sounds important on the surface, but we're going to dive into what that means and so forth. So Sarah, would you just start, because I think it is important to give this some context and share about the code of conduct in our district that again, is similar to many others, how that's recently been changed and what perhaps some of the big implications are when it comes to the safety and uh, disciplinary actions and so forth, uh, respect and all those things that matter so much to me in our public schools. Absolutely. Uh, So restorative justice, like you said, Emily, sounds really nice on the surface, but um, is not, it's, uh, it's worse than it sounds. Um, So uh, the movement of restorative justice started actually in the 70s, like many of these insidious things in academia, and it was just a concept. uh, But now, again, like many other ideas, has matriculated down into even elementary education and was pushed uh, big time by uh, President Obama and his Justice Department. And basically what they said is, students of color are disproportionately expelled and suspended in schools and that's uh, a racist thing and you guys need to fix it. This was uh, a dear colleague letter out to all schools across the country. And so that started to get implemented. Uh, Betsy DeVos. I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to interrupt you because you're just starting to explain this, but my curiosity is around you know, okay, so we've identified the problem. We see that there are these disparities. It seems like it would be logical to ask the question, why is this happening? Where is this happening? How can we figure out how to better serve these students, these schools, so forth, rather than this huge, broad approach without actually trying to figure out what is the problem beyond school color or or skin color. I'm sorry, but if in that case, it seems like there would be a quick um, judgment of being racist or whatever, but was in this, when, when this was sent out, 
was there any explanation around the reasons why and how to address those? Or was it strictly that we need to stop suspending and expelling the students? Uh, you hit the nail on the head. Um, no, there was no practical application because that's never what happens when we're talking about these concepts. Uh, it was change it or else. Um, and yes, you're right. What would actually benefit students would be to look at the student and the situation. And if extreme disciplinary actions are necessary, then they're necessary. Um, if they're not, it's a case by case basis. And obviously if a school district seems to have a pattern of racism, you need to address that. But to just assume that it's racist until proven otherwise is uh, just painting everything with a broad brush and ultimately going to hurt children. Mm -hmm. So let's, will you explain, um, so or from a practical application standpoint, how the code of conduct and the levels of offense and that kind of thing have recently changed here along with other districts? Yeah, absolutely. So um, because of this mandate being pushed, uh, now schools have decided that we can no longer really expel and suspend students, particularly of, of certain um, races, which I can't believe I'm saying that, but that's, mm -hmm. that's, that's true. Um, and so they have, so there's a whole way they address disciplinary behaviors. And in my personal opinion, uh, in an effective way, but they, they basically had to make this whole, and, and I mean, most of these code of conducts, if you look at them are like hundreds, hundreds of pages. Um, and yet in all those hundreds of pages, none of it really works. So what that means on a practical level is teachers don't have the backup if they have a student being uh, disruptive or violent in their class. I mean, this, it has to be really bad before they even get to remove the child and do in-school suspension for the day. I mean, we're talking actual physical violence. And as we know, what starts off with you know, a little disruption can escalate very quickly. And so it puts the other students at risk. It puts the teachers at risk. It's just bad all around. So is it true also that now to have a, an altercation with a, another student is a lesser offense than if you were to say something obscene or whatever to a teacher or a threaten a teacher or whatever? Is it, is it true that student to student inter altercations are actually a higher offense now than those involving a teacher? So there's actually no specific standard about what the punishment is going to be, which is so absurd, like I said, because we're talking hundreds of pages. So the whole idea is, well, conflict hurts everybody, including the perpetrator. So we're going to do conflict resolution. So, so we're going to get together with the school counselor and the, the, the kid who did the bad thing and the kid or teacher who they hurt, and we're going to talk it out. I mean, a lot of the times it'll refer to um, conflict resolution circles, the circle of people that were injured. I, I mean, you can't make this stuff up. And it's a lot of the same stuff when we saw the defund the police movement. It's like, oh, don't worry. We don't need police officers. We need social workers. And we saw how that mm -hmm. worked out. Right. So essentially there, I mean, what, what this all boils down to is race excluded. It doesn't really, that's not of the 
prevalence right now. We're talking about school safety when it boils down to it and expectations of behavior within a school setting that have kind of been all pushed by the wayside in favor of making sure we don't suspend or expel too many kids that look a certain way. Would you say that kind of is a good summary of the argument here or of what's happening? Yeah, 100%. That That's the perfect way to describe it. And so this is why, in my personal opinion, we are seeing such high teacher attrition. Everybody knows teachers aren't paid enough, um, but you know that's kind of been the case for a long time. So what is it that changed? Why are so many teachers leaving? And yes, COVID exacerbated it, but um, I think they're leaving because they can't teach. And you hear this from teachers on both sides of the aisle. I can't teach. I'm so busy just being a referee in my classroom that I can't actually teach because I can't remove a disruptive student immediately and, and move on with the lesson, which is ridiculous. I'm trying to find it, but and I might not be able to quick enough, but I, I saw a, a, a graph recently that was done by a bipartisan group, and I, I wish that I could find it right now. Um, but the, I mean, the, the teacher attrition is, I mean, a huge, huge problem. And when this graph went across the aisle, asked teachers, it didn't even ask for any, you know, a lot of demographic information, which maybe that would have been interesting to know, but it was more about the issues. And while pay was part of it way, I mean, it was far and wide that more teachers complain that they have no authority over their classrooms and student behavior is not tolerable. I would argue those things probably go together because if teachers don't have any control over their classroom, students, and especially we're talking about teenagers that are already pushing boundaries in a lot of these circumstances, but I know it's starting earlier and earlier, that are already going to test authority. And if there are no consequences for their actions and there are no real boundaries, then it, it just seems ludicrous to me that we think that sitting in a circle and talking it out when we've got teenage hormones raging and, you know, whatever the situation might be that, that somehow we're going to talk it out in a circle. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's, it's ridiculous. And we have to look at who does this ultimately harm. Um, and I would argue that it, it ultimately harms the rest of the children in the class who can behave themselves, because again, the teacher is, is constantly interrupted and it harms children in schools uh, that have less nuclear families that live below the poverty line. So you're going to have more disruptive behavior because all of those correlate and that's just the, the facts. Uh, and so you would be able to just go to school and get a break from their chaotic life and maybe get the skills and the tools to better their life are now pushed to the wayside to focus on a couple disruptive kids. And I'm not saying we throw these disruptive kids out, maybe mm -hmm. we make a special school for them. I'm not, you know, I, I am not one to give up on people. I think as my husband says, we need to meet reality on reality's terms. And the reality is that keeping a continuously disruptive child or teenager in the classroom in the general population of kids that can behave themselves is a punishment and a detriment to the rest of, to the children that can behave themselves. Right. Right. And, you know, <sighs> 
What? Ha- so I, I was actually in preparation for this. My husband and I were talking last night about when we were kids, you know, way back in the day. And kids definitely got suspended and expelled across the board. It, in my school district where I grew up, if you got kicked out of school, you you're, you went to the board of education building for an alternative school program with like one teacher there and just a few kids essentially. Do kids still get expelled or is that like, we don't even do that anymore? What, what is the highest level of authority that an administrator has in handling discipline? So they don't really get expelled anymore. It's, it's possible, but, uh, um, it's just like anything, if a teacher is expelling, or sorry, if a principal is expelling children too much, they get a talking to. And actually, in our district, there there is a monetary bonus for principals who do not, or who meet a certain qu- quota of, or I guess don't meet there's a line that you can't go over of, of kids to expel. And so mm-hmm. as long as you're under that, you get a bonus. Um, it's a little bit more complex than that, but that's essentially what it boils down to. So there's an incentive to just let the kid figure out how to kind of just keep the peace, but it's keeping the peace means, um, you know, maybe removing the kid for a second and putting them right back in. So you can imagine chronic disruptions and then eventually the kid may drop out. Maybe they'll get moved around from school to school. Um, but again, not really addressing the root cause of the situation. And I also like you guys, when I was a kid, people did get expelled. People got suspended. And it wasn't like a one-time offense you would get expelled. It, it was always those kids, and I don't like to say bad kids, but kids who were troubled kids Mm -hmm. had a pattern of bad behavior and Mm -hmm. everybody said, Hey, this isn't working anymore for anybody. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So now ultimately we're leaving kids that have repetitive behavior problems inside of generally the same school with the same kids perpetrating likely the same behaviors and teachers have no standard of which those problems are going to be handled. Would you agree that that's a fair assessment? Yeah. And, and it, it's, it's a fair assessment and it puts again, everybody at risk, not just of learning loss and disruptions, but this is why we're seeing school violence explode. We had a school shooting last year mm-hmm. in this district. It was two rival gang members. And I was shocked to learn that these young men had already had uh had already exchanged gunfire with each other and right yet they were allowed to be in the same school um you know when i worked at the hospital i, I worked at a level one trauma um for your listeners who don't know i'm a nurse and i worked at a level one trauma center so we would get a lot of gunshot victims a lot of gang rela- related gunshot victims we wouldn't even let them be in the not even the same floor but we would like other ends of the hospital um give them all a fake name so that you know people couldn't come in and finish the job but yet we're putting people who have exchanged gunfire in the same, back in the same uh, high school with completely innocent children and teachers. That's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Right. Yes. That, as the details unfolded, which it seemed like the 
um, those who were investigating and in charge of the situation certainly didn't want to be public knowledge. But as they did become public knowledge, I think there were many question marks around how both of those students wound up in the same school when what had what had they'd already had this history so um so let's talk about does this actually work so we have this concept of restorative justice where we sit in circles and talk it out there are no real consequences i mean Side note, I have four little boys and we are constantly talking about why obedience matters when we're young so that what that leads to when we're older and why that matters and why boundaries are important and how when we're responsible with the boundaries that they have, they they expand and so forth. I imagine that no matter how hard we're working at home to instill those principles, obviously school is a big deal. And if we're erasing that, that it also, it has negative implications with our role and our, our desire as parents to yes, keep our kids safe, but also to teach them how obedience works and that there are consequences when you disobey and, and so forth. I mean, this whole idea that there are no true, there are no consequences, not, not big ones anyway, there's no real consequences is baffling to me that we think that somehow this is going to point the next generation in a better direction rather than coming alongside these kids that are struggling, figuring out what are the deep rooted issues, what are their needs and and, and addressing those on a case-by-case basis. That seems pretty obvious to me, but let's talk about what are what evidence do we have around restorative justice and its mitigation of these, of these uh, disparate outcomes or how it's improving safety in schools. So I'm glad you asked that because the evidence... <laughs> The evidence is inconvenient for the proponents of restorative justice. Um, now, to be fair, I do think this concept can work for first-time offenders, but that was already happening anyway. Again, like I said, very rarely would a child be expelled for a first offense. Um, and so conflict resolution is not a new concept. Teaching children when you disobey when you break a rule, it does hurt people. And here's how it hurt people. Uh, but you can only explain that so many times. So, so speaking of evidence, Tucker Carlson on his show uh, mentioned this last night in not in the context of school, but in the context of crime, because this is what we're seeing with cashless bail. This is what we're seeing with uh, basically letting criminals, not Soros back DAs, not charging criminals. Um, what's happening of course is shocker crime is skyrocketing and and also the offenders are getting younger and younger um police in chicago said that they have seen people as young as 10 and 11 do carjackings i mean that's insane and mm -hmm. and so yeah it's it's truly insane so of course this these are the extreme cases but i think everybody intuitively knows this isn't working because if you think about children and their lack of respect for adults in general versus how it was maybe even 20, 10 years ago, we can see 
that children just don't respect adults like they used to. Yeah. I mean, yes. And, and again, I, I think I see just how cultural influences outside of school. So my kids are in a, in a private Christian school. And so let me just, let me share the opposite side of that. My children attend the most diverse private school in the state of North Carolina. In our school, it is very well written in the student handbook, what is expected of students, but even more so that each teacher individually has control of their own classroom. And because of that, those teachers are involved heavily in the disciplinary actions and outcomes of what happens when a child disobeys. Now, I might not agree with everything that a teacher decides if my child misbehaves. However, I feel that I am teaching my child respect of authority when I come alongside that teacher and say, sorry, you don't like it. This is what your teacher decided. And she might have made it, she or he might have made a different decision than I would have. However, it's your job to respect that. And it's your job to obey their standards and stay within their boundaries. Like we said, standard boundaries and obedience. And so, and you might imagine, Sarah, I don't think you'll be shocked that we have very few major behavior issues in our school, whether it even with back talking teachers or saying disrespectful things and that kind of thing, because they are able to run a tight ship and it works well despite a very diverse student body that comes from a lot of different backgrounds and so forth. Yes, it is a Christian school. However, it works really well. And so um, I think it's just important to point out that there are other options. And we, again, we, how is it not, and this is of course very unpopular, but how is it not racist in the opposite way than what they would say to hold kids to a lower standard because of the color of their skin. Like when we look at these things and we dig down deeper beyond the surface, how is that helping a, our minority communities to feel empowered and that they are able to accomplish anything and that kind of thing. I don't understand how this concept of quote equity is supposed to help a generation to become the best that they can be. So, yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And um, I am not surprised to hear that you, uh, that the school year children attend don't, doesn't really have any or a lot of discipline issues. Um, and uh, yes, I think it's actually harmful to children who come from homes that maybe aren't as stable because like you mentioned before, while this can undo what the parents do at home if the parents are, are uh, discipline focused and uh, if, if imagine a child who has a chaotic home life who doesn't have two parents in the home or um, who has a parent who has a substance abuse issue. So they get no discipline at home, no boundaries, no structure at home. And the only place they could possibly get that and have consistency in their life would be school. And if that's removed, they're not gonna learn how to function in society. So guess what, when they turn 18, they, they are way behind and are much more likely 
to end up in the criminal justice system. And once you're 18, the criminal justice system, although we are seeing that change, is not so kind. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that's a great point. It's like the whole point of school is to prepare kids for adulthood. Yes, learning. So you have applicable skills to take with you. Also, how to function in society amongst peers and people. And if there's no accountability as we're going through the time when, yes, we're supposed to mess up, you know, that childhood is the time like we want our kids to to fail within the boundaries where they have a soft place to land so that we can help guide them and help them through that. But preparing them with appropriate skills and rising up and learning how to uh, make amends and to do, but, but there are, there are actual consequences that must be experienced and felt in order to learn and prepare to do things a different way the next time that we're confronted with the same challenge um, rather than, you know, I mean, kids are smart. They know if a teacher has mm-hmm. no control, if even that administrator is unable to really hand out any consequences, then what is keeping anyone from obeying anything? It just, to me, it's, it sounds like chaos. And I feel like we yep. live in a society of chaos now that, that actually almost encourages chaos. And the we're already talking about kids that are our most anxious generation, our most depressed, our most isolated. And when you add the chaos of your eight hours a day that you spend in school to that, how like let's let's consider those implications that mm-hmm. all of the kids are having to experience. You know, I mean, I think there's such a broader issue here, and trying to boil it down to um, some you know, one little piece of this, and again, not asking why and what can we do about it, but instead lower the standards is the worst thing that we can do for every child involved in these situations and this that that attends our our schools. Yeah, I couldn't have said it better myself. Uh, This is what happens when you allow ivory tower theoretical practices from academics uh, enter into real life situations. Hmm. That's great. I mean, and I think that's what we're seeing so much with all different types of things is academic theories are ultimately being tested on our kids and yes. without really much proof that that's going to be helpful in advance. And it's so often disguised as these encompassing words that sound really, um, they sound, they sound objective and they sound like there's, you know, a lot of science behind them or whatever. Mm-hmm. But when we boil it down to what are the actual reasons and then what are the actual outcomes, generally they don't stack up very well, just like this one. So yeah, my question is, because I don't want to be like negative Nelly ever, but I think we've <laughs> got to always be citizens that are digging below the surface what would you, especially as we are in an election season right now, what would you encourage 
parents that might be curious about what their codes of conduct or standards are or have questions for their administration? What, what would you what would you encourage parents to do that want to be a part of the solution? Because we don't want to sit around and complain. And obviously you've stepped up to the plate and are running for office. And I commend you greatly for that. What can parents do to help be a part of the solution or to consider what's actually happening in their schools? Yeah, that's a great question. And so, so what parents can do is the school, the schools need more stable adults. So showing up, volunteering, seeing with your own eyes, what's going on is super important. Um, And then if you do see things that are concerning, what you should do is you should then show up at your local school board meeting and start asking questions because if there is a groundswell of popular support, it makes it much harder for this to be ignored by state legislatures and and school board members. So, Mm -hmm. because I'll tell you, the people who are proponents of restorative justice, they show up to these meetings. And so the perception is most people agree with this. And Mm -hmm. I understand we all have busy lives, um, but this is where organizing as activists are so important. And again, I, I truly encourage uh, parents, even if their children go to private school, to at, at least try to show up at school-sponsored events and bring your children, the, the public school-sponsored events, um, just to have a, a grasp of what's going on in your community. Because these kids who are going to be leaving the schools when they're 18 are going to remain in your community. Um, and so we, we need to, we need to fix this. Yes, absolutely. And I think that's such a good point. I mean, it's difficult because like you said, we're all so busy, but ultimately regardless of where our kids go to school, what happens in the public schools is going to shape the next generation significantly. And so Um, I know that personally, I've come to some things that could be more involved and I appreciate that, that point, um, for sure. So, um, appreciate you coming on the show, Sarah, you always have great expertise to share, keep digging into the issues because I love to hear, um, what you have to, to, to say and share. And again, there's so much happening below the surface that, um, Ultimately, I always ask myself, I'm like, why don't they want us to know this? Or why is this snuck Mm -hmm. into a meeting that has this like one little bullet point that sounds a certain way, but where is all the evidence behind it that the parents will want to know? Like, I I just don't see that very often. And I appreciate that you find that wherever it might be hidden and dig into it and, and expose all of the details around it. So thanks for what you do and um, good luck in these next couple of, uh, I guess, what are we, three months or so, less than three months away, right? Yeah, two two months basically. Two months, yeah. I'm like, wait, it's almost the end of August. So um, good luck with everything as you continue to reach out to our community and appreciate you. Thank you so much for having me. Take care, bye-bye. Take care, bye.